Now you choose your gran. This you must feel inside. If he also chooses, you move quick like I showed. You will have one chance, Jake. How will I know if he chooses me? He will try to kill you. Outstanding. Welcome to the Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast, Avatar Retrospective. Well, well, well. I'd say diplomacy has failed. Join Garrett. I didn't sign up for this shit. Matt. I know you think I'm crazy. And Adam. And you're a great warrior. Can't do this without you. As they review James Cameron's billion dollar science fiction franchise. The enemy is out there, and they are very powerful. Are critics unfair in calling the first movie as blue as its on-screen characters? Is this true? Does that first film really have the lasting impact of being the biggest money-making film of all time? It was pretty impressive. And does the latest entry have any chance of topping it in quality and money grosses? I see you. The answers to all these questions and more coming up, courtesy of Percolated Media. Okay, this is video log 12 times 2132. Avatar, The Way of Water, released December 16th, 2022. Budget on this was $460 million. Box office so far is $555.9 million. And this is directed for the first time in 12 years by James Cameron. Here we are, guys. It's a movie 12 years in the making. We talked about it last week. The anticipation was high. But I got to say, in the anticipation of last week's movie, in the buzz coming out about that movie, we all knew that we were going to get, not a rip, but a Fern Gully retelling, pretty much, like Dances with Wolves retelling, whatever you want to call it. Boys, I had no idea when I walked into that theater a week ago that I was going to get Star Trek Four. Because that's what I feel like I, t- I watched when I saw this fucking movie. Unbelievable. But the anticipation was high. Box office. We'll talk about the box office at the end of this. But um, Adam, you were the fan. You were the one who pushed for this. You walked in that theater. What were you feeling when it was finally getting ready to start? I was excited that it was finally happening. It had been yeah, a dozen plus years, 13 years since since Avatar came out. Clearly, I was the one that had probably the most amount of nostalgia out of the three of us for it. I tried to stay away from any type of of review. I didn't read any reviews. I stayed away from a trailer unless it was put in front of my face. So I tried to go into this knowing as little as possible. And I was just ready for James Cameron. It's like I said before, bet against the guy at your own peril. We'll discuss whether or not that peril shows here. But I was was just ready for what he was going to give me, ready to jump in the deep end. And Mr. Goudreau, you were pretty tough on last week's movie. What were you feeling? You, you're sitting in the theater. You watched it a couple days after me and Adam did. What were you feeling you were about ready to see? When I sat down to watch the movie, number one, it was surprising to get 3D glasses for the first yeah. time. Because it's been at least a good decade since that 3D post-Avatar craze wore out its welcome to the point where people just stopped doing it. But I told myself, and I told Christian, if we're going to see this, I say if as if I had any choice in this matter, (laughs) that I would pay for the full experience. So I paid for the ACX Dolby, which is a couple additional dollars, and then the 3D on top of that is a little bit more. So I went in 
slightly lighter in the wallet, but it was a packed theater, which I was very excited about, but there always is a certain amount of anxiety on my part because you don't know what kind of audience you're going to get. Happy to say there was no disruptive children. There were no cell phones going off. It was a immersive experience as fully intended, so I, I cannot say that I got the the short end of the stick or drowned in the shallow ends, but to be honest, when I sat down, I'm not going to call myself excited, but there was a certain amount of anticipation that this thing was finally here because it's been talked about for the longest of time, whether it's a butt end of jokes. Between the three of us, it was the whole, I'll believe it when I see it, when mm. I put it on the schedule. I'm like, all right, who knows? This thing will probably get punted again. As we get closer and closer, I was like, all right, we're probably going to have to review this. And then about two weeks out, I was like, okay, we recorded the first movie, so I guess the second one's coming out, although pulling it at the very last minute would not surprise me, given the turmoil at Disney with Bob Iger coming back, that whole situation. Uh, so was I excited? Yes, until I looked at my watch, and the three-hour-plus runtime was confirmed. That was not a rumor. And I said, all right, I'm here for the long haul. And I said no to a soda or a coffee during the movie because I knew three hours is a lot to gamble on. So I was pleasantly surprised that my anticipation was as high as it was. That is surprising, especially given the, not hate, but pretty much the venom you spewed at uh, the first Avatar last week. If a 5 out of 10 infused venom, by the way, people ask me, what does a 5 mean to you? For me, it's the whole idea of I can recognize the qualities within it, and there may be components that are very strong, which I talk to, but overall, I can't really recommend it. So it's in the same window as Inception for me, which already got me plenty of shit. So I don't think having this opinion of Avatar is really not that controversial. <laughs> I didn't say it was controversial. I just said that it didn't sound like you were looking forward as much forward to it as, let's say, Adam or even I was. Well, Adam was the, the biggest proponent of this movie to begin with. So I don't think no matter what I saw in the trailers, neither you or I could top him because I'm sure he showed up in his Pandora tour guide outfit to find his. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm glad you brought up the theatrical experience because what I would like to do as we get deeper into the site is, and we'll talk about this more next week, but we have quite a slate next year and there are quite a few new releases. And I like to do what we usually do, which is talk about what happened when we went to the theater, because a new release means you get to go do the theatrical experience, and that's exactly what we did. Matt, we did the same as you, although we sprung for the IMAX tickets and took her out to a very nice dinner at the resort I work at, and we went from there to the theater. And when we sat down, we sat down about a half hour before, and it looked maybe half full. And I was thinking, oh, God. If this movie does not making any money on a Thursday night, I don't know what's going to happen with it. As we got up to leave, and one thing I love about the whole marvelization of people is they sit throughout the entire credits, no matter what movie it is, whether it's Marvel or not, <laughs> thinking they're going to see something. So as soon as this movie ended and the credits started, I went to Jen. I said, let's get the fuck out. We got up. We started walking. We looked up. The entire place was packed. And you're right. I had the same thing, Matt. I'm like, what kind of crowd am I going to get? Well... The seats I like to get are right above the handicap section so that there's, there's a bar in front of me. And as people know, I have very long legs. I'm a pretty tall dude. So I like to put my legs up and I'm not going to do that if there's a person in front of me. We sat down and the crowd was very quiet with the exception of the couple behind us who, if they weren't wrestling their fucking candy and eating popcorn throughout the entire three and a half hour movie, they got two refills of their fucking popcorn. 
And every time they got up, they would kick me and Jen's chairs. It's like, I love the theatrical experience, but when it comes to people like that, I'm like, Jesus fucking Christ. I mean, the Fablemans was a great theatrical experience. This, it was immersive, but God, I wish those people, I wish somebody would have taken those people and thrown them uh, deep underwater in Pandora. Adam, what about you? You had a theatrical experience. Did you take the family if you did and you saw IMAX? Boy, how do you have enough money for Christmas, sir? (laughs) The family and I are actually going to go next week. They were still in school, got stuff and that going on, and I want to make that I got this in as early as I could so that I was ready for this. I went by myself. I went to Thursday, and I went ahead and took in the, the Dolby Atmos. I was tempted to go to IMAX, but the IMAX screen that I have that's right down the street from my house, I have less than pleasant experiences would be extremely generous. I've actually reached out to IMAX directly to complain about their lack of quality control on that specific screen and i won't pay for an imax ticket anymore i just won't do it and it sucked because i really wanted to see the Oppenheimer teaser and i really wanted to see the mission impossible tease so whatever i went ahead and i i got my dolby atmos powered leather recliner i got the little lanyard that they gave away for it lenticular lanyard kind of cool so it was just me with my large popcorn that i was chomping for three hours i'm Courteous, at least in the theater. You my, I've gone to movies my, with you. You're very courteous. <laughs> my my extra large icy because I know if I'm going to sit in the movie for two hours, icy. I don't have to pee. If I get a soda, I'm going to have to piss a few times. So I figured this one out. The theater, you know, I got there nice and early. I knew it was going to be a four hour experience by the time trailers and Nicole Kidman saying hi to me and everything else was done. The crowd was animated, which is something that I was not expecting. Not just animated like the screen. They were, you know, actually animated throughout the movie, which I wasn't expecting. The only negative experience from a crowd standpoint was very early. I was like the second trailer in, so the house lights were down, and there was a screaming freaking baby in the middle of the theater. And I just paid $23 for a ticket. This is preview night. This baby is not going to sit here for three hours. And I'm not saying... Who on this podcast might have yelled out, this isn't the place for a fucking baby right now, but I don't know if they left and went out the other exit, but I didn't hear a peep the rest of the night, so I think they got the hint, <laughs> and I'm actually really happy about that. That is beautiful. I try to sit off to the side because lately, cell phones aren't the problem anymore. It's fucking smartwatches keep popping up my peripheral vision, and that is the worst thing that exists for me right now, so I got a really good view good spot and i had no issues once the baby left the rest of the time wow and you, you mentioned going to the bathroom i mean this movie is three plus hours and we had just gone out to dinner and it was right in the midst of the fight with the teenagers on screen and i had to go so freaking bad and i'm like i can't fucking do this anymore i got up and luckily we were right by the aisle i just got up and zoomed over and by the time i came back i had just missed the first whale experience i guess we'll say so i spent a lot of the time going okay what are these whales what exactly is this and then of course you know that all started but yeah i, I picked the worst time to fucking get up and leave in this three plus hour movie mr cameron russo brothers everybody else out there there's nothing wrong with an intermission yeah <laughs> I remember going to see Braveheart with my father, loved that movie, and there's an intermission about halfway through that movie. I think there was for Heat as well. There's nothing wrong with saying, 10 minutes, be back in your seat. You know? I remember there was one for Titanic, too, speaking of Cameron. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I, I know audiences have, I don't know if grown up is the right word, but maybe grown accustomed to longer and longer run times, but I think COVID is 
partially responsible for that. I think we stopped editing movies once theaters opened back up in 2020, kind of that summer. I think Wonder Woman was maybe the biggest example of that, but I think editing just has no longer been a priority to worry about runtimes. times. And Cameron's been out in the press a lot lately, and you can always find a good Cameron quote to pull when you're... <laughs> When it's time to talk, because that guy will always say something that's really off the cuff and funny. He said, you know what? He's like, we don't make these movies thinking about people's abilities to hold in their fucking pee. He's like, if you have to pee, go fucking pee. I don't care. Like, I'm not going to make this just for you. Got to admire the uh, way he carries himself in the press. I mean, he may come off as a softer guy on set, but in the press, he's he's still an arrogant prick. This movie... Like I said, it was 12 years in the making. He started making noise right about 2010-ish when it was looking like Avatar had already made his money back. And he said, okay, well, we're going to do two sequels. He already said he was going to do two sequels. And he wrote the script, wasn't happy with it, wrote it again. And then he decided, you know what, I want to do what they do on TV shows. I'm going to get a set of writers together. We're going to get a writing room. And Rick Jaffa and Amanda Silver who they wrote those apes movies that have come out. And Amanda Silver, I know, because she wrote The Hand of Arthur Cradle, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> and he got Shane Shalano, who we talked about when we talked about Aliens versus Predator Requiem. They hashed some ideas out. They had a whiteboard with every single scene in every single one of these movies. You know what? And Cameron still was tweaking. He was thinking about firing the entire writing crew because he wasn't really happy with how it was going. And around 2015 was when he said it was coming out. Then it got delayed because it kept writing, writing, writing. It took about three years to write these scripts. Finally, they started shooting about 2017, 2018. And it's funny. I read an interview with Edie Falco where she said that she had filmed her scenes like four or five years ago. And she thought it had already come out and flopped because she didn't hear anything about it. And she realized this week, she's like, oh, shit, it's coming out this week? Like, that's how long Jesus. this thing has been that gets into a big question about not just this movie, but the future. Exactly. When you have a movie predominantly centered, this film in particular, centered on the kids, if you let too much time pass, they're not going to be able to play these roles forever. Otherwise, you're going to have to do pretty substantial time jumps, especially considering of the four, three of them are played by kids, two teenagers, and then I'm sure the, the youngest kid's probably eight or nine when she shot her scenes. So I'm very curious how long ago a lot of their stuff was shot versus everyone else. Because, you know, we talked about this with Harry Potter. They shot those wasting as little time as possible because they knew you're running a risk if you wait too long. Well, they shot two and three back to back. Four, I don't think he has done yet. So that's a great point. You know, we'll see, especially a movie that is so much of it is based on a vision that you can't do in the real world. That's a great point. They uh, obviously did some things with a couple characters that were killed last movie that they can probably do if uh, worse comes to worse. But I'm sure Cameron and his writers have thought that out. Yeah, and speaking of Stephen King, we live in a world now where with It Chapter 2, they de-aged kids after movies were shot two years ago. Granted, there's a big difference between a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old. So anything's possible as far as technology. All right. Well, we got into our theatrical experience. We kind of talked about the making Boys, what do you guys say we dive into this plot? And by the way, you know, last week's plot, we talked about it. It wasn't too intricate. There wasn't too much going on. And I thought maybe, uh, going into this movie, I was like, you know what? It's not going to be that complicated a plot. Fucking Tenet has a less complicated plot than this fucking movie. There's so much going on in this movie. (laughs) Which is why I had to see it twice for this fucking review. Because I had to get a lot down. But let's try this. So... 
We're starting off in a real musical loop as we journey through the skies and right back in the heart of Pandora. And Cameron is certainly showing off his Peter Jackson-like ability to show off his scenery right from the get-go, isn't he, Adam? Yeah, he is. I mean, last time we, a little more of a slow reveal, and it wasn't about the planet. We get that initial voiceover the same way, because God knows nothing opens the movie like Sam Worthington. Oh, boy. <laughs> God. I mean, clearly he's just like, okay, you know where we are. Let me show you what more I can show you of this planet. I mean, he just wanted to be like, boom, here it is. I'm going to flop it on your face and just show you what I got to show you. As impressive as that is, though, with the landscape, you definitely see a lot more of Pandora. I felt like it was a miscalculation on his part because he counters it, or compliments it, I should say, with a ton of exposition. Mm -hmm. It has to do with the context of this movie. There's so much... That's new information. It's not all a recap of the previous movie. It's the crucial details between one and two. And because there's so much, you really have to be paying attention. And even for me, as someone, you know, I was wide awake when I saw this, it was a bit of sensory overload where it, it jam-packs it for the first five minutes, but then the movie slows the fuck down for the first act. And you bring up Sam Worthington, Adam. We, we get the voiceovers again, and I already have questions. So if he doesn't have a video log this time... Who the fuck is he talking to? Damn it. You know what? That, that never even crossed my mind. Oh, you know what? It could have been what did it? Uh, Thor Love and Thunder. It should have been where he's telling a story to the kids and explaining what's going on or telling it around campfire to some more of the tribe because we see that introduced here in, in his new role. And yeah, why is he talking? To me, it was a, we started the last one with it. We're going to do it again. I thought he was going to be telling this to the comatose Sigourney Weaver avatar. I thought that was going to be the framing device that he kind of goes there for, like, his internal therapy just to tell her or mm -hmm. the body, all that, what's happening. And for Sam Worthington, said 13 years, his voiceover has not improved. But I will say this. I think Cameron recognized his limitations, and that's why Jake Sully is not the main character. The plot works around him, but it's specifically designed so that he does not have to carry a lot of the heft, and he's not in every scene, basically, like he is in the first one. And I'll say I identified with his character more, largely because he is a put-upon father who is stressed out that he has two sons that don't listen to him. And I identify with that tremendously at the stage of my life. <laughs> I think, yeah, James Cameron realized that the issues with Sam Worthington in the last film, and you know what he did to fix it this time? He can animate that face however the hell he wants to. <laughs> you know, whatever he's not going to give in, in vocal inflections, at least Cameron, him and Weta Workshop can make that face a little more animated. He's fine. I don't hate Sam Worthington. I think everything that he was supposed to be when Avatar came out, he never lived up to. We talked before. I was looking so forward to those Clash of the Titans movies, and man, that was a freaking bomb. I like Terminator Salvation. I'm the one, just because I thought it did something different that I could appreciate. But I think the smartest thing about this film with in regards to Sam Worthington is, as Matt put it, he's a device, but everything is controlled around him. Yeah. where it's not reliant on him. And that's the point I was going to make, too, boys, is last time he was the character, everything... I mean, he was the protagonist in that movie. Here, everything's happening around him, and it's not revolved around him, though we are still focused on his voiceovers. We're not having to, A, see him as a human, which was a huge part of what we didn't like last time. And B, he emotes, but it's in an animated form, and it's, it's hard to explain how 
that could be a better performance, but I, I don't think as much of a performance as much as it's a reactionary performance, which is how Worthington works. He's better as a reactionary actor, not an actor who moves the plot along. So he says the most dangerous thing about Pandora is you grow to love her too much. And then we move on to a nice 3D shot of a knocked-up Nateri firing an arrow. And I have one complaint right off the bat, boys. Last week, we theorized what Cameron was going to do with Nateri. We even had the theory that he might kill her off. Well, he might as well have, because with the exception of one or two sequences towards the end, the most captivating character of his entire fucking blue-ass planet is nowhere to be found, and that's a fucking shame. I understand that thought, and I did. I completely thought that was going to be... What happened to her? Especially because the one trailer I saw, I thought she was very minimized. So I thought she was a goner for sure. However, because both of them are kind of minimized, it didn't bug me as much. And then as we get towards the end, what she does do is so freaking stand out again that I love when she's in it. Understanding that they're focusing on the kids. But when we do get into Terry, God, Zoe Saldana is so fucking great in this role. It's kind of crazy. You want to talk about a bipolar couple. One can't emote to save his freaking life or family's life, and the other one is just amazing at it, even behind CG. <laughs> so, I know we're going to have this conversation next year, but this reminded me of a very specific performance in movie. It's reminded me so much of what they did with Natalie Portman in the last prequel, where we're just going to have her waddle around, be pregnant, and cry throughout the entire movie. That's her role, and it's the same one here, to where she is the supportive wife but she's always angry at him. I don't think there's ever a moment of reconciliation between the two. You can have a character like that, but she was by far the most interesting character. There were instances where I thought they could have delved more with her being isolated from her clan or her forest tribe, whatever you want to call it. Once they get to Atlantis or whatever, God, the names in these goddamn movies are impossible to memorize. Dude, try, try remembering the kids' names. Go yeah, ahead. I just call them older. I call them one, two, three, four. Yeah, uh, I go in order of age, but <laughs> that's basically dropped once they get there, and then she just becomes, I'm going to stay in this hut and, and make medicine and things like that, so yeah. I'm happy that Jake was not integral to the plot as far as screen time, but I thought by taking them both off the table, it seemed like an all-or-nothing move on Cameron's part. Here, Nateri is singing as we're seeing their family revealed, and they hold up their new son like he's Simba. They also say that they adopted a daughter made off of Grace from the last film's Avatar. And I have to say, this was a very creative way to bring Sigourney Weaver back and another character we're going to bring up later into the sequel. This was pretty creative on Cameron's part. You know, he didn't want to depart with Weaver, so he found a way to put her in. It surprised the heck out of me because I knew that Sigourney was in this in some way, and I wasn't expecting the way that they did this. So it's interesting. I don't feel like it's fully understood yet i don't even think i completely understood what happened here i have a theory but i like this inclusion a little more than another inclusion that comes up here about the same time to bring some other people back i was not a fan of this decision the only knock i have on weaver's performance is that there are times where she just sounds like a 75 year old woman but she has to yell towards the end that's just comes with age i could not believe i should say i'm not surprised because these movies are pride themselves on archetypical stories but we literally have an immaculate conception in this movie and i guarantee you she is going to become blue kitty cat jesus for this entire <laughs> series and again these movies remind me so much of star wars prequels she is anakin there is no father i thought this was it was an interesting idea that could be expanded upon to make me like it but as it stands i thought the execution left a lot to be desired 
especially for a three-plus-hour movie, I was kind of hoping that she would be the main one that we followed, not the older sons. How are you guys feeling as we are brought back into this world and we're introduced to this culture that Jake has found himself a permanent part of? He's got four kids. It's a different dynamic than what we saw last time. Adam, are you feeling like this was worth the wait? Yes, only because in the meantime, like I've read some in this world and stuff like that. So I understood that we were going to be going along a little bit. I do think the problem is we get the explanation early on. We get the montage of what's been going on, but we don't see where this family has been indebted itself or the tribe has indebted itself to the family within these. And it's almost like the same time frame that we have. It's been 13 years. I think the oldest kid feels like he's around 16 or so. It would have been something to kind of feel the family's integration into this, or at least Jake's integration into this. Much is made later on about the children's being half-breeds, pretty much. And I think this initial tribe that we spent the entire last movie with, I think we needed to see some more connection there so that when it separates, it means a little more. It's a good thing I saw the first movie as recently as I did because I would equate this to preview another franchise we'll be doing very soon. Someone tying a cannon to my feet and throwing me into the ocean because the movie does not hold your hand. And I somewhat admire that because Cameron is saying, all right, if you're watching this movie, you are either being dragged to it or you are someone who is appreciative of the world and wants to be reimmersed. But it's not done at a leisurely pace. Like I said, he just throws you in and he tells you, all right, sink or swim, bitch, let's go. We are also introduced to Spider as a child, and we learn that even as he's human, he's become a part of the tribe. Now, this actor, they have to be Spider, who eventually becomes a huge part of the story. It took Cameron long enough, but I think he's finally found this Jake Lloyd. Every time this dude was on screen, wow. I cringed. I fucking hated this character with a passion. <laughs> I'm not going to go that far. This is the one character, Cameron and writing staff, you could tell it was written by multiple people. Yes. Because his allegiances and his worldview keeps changing on a dime. There's a point where they treat they treat him one way when they should not be, given his state. I think... It was a mistake to gloss over this as quickly as they do. Okay, the tribe's going to accept him. No questions asked. And yeah, of course, there's the... This movie's fucking Fast and Furious in space. I didn't realize how much this was going to be about family, on top of all things. But he's the one character that I think he's underwritten, and you can never get a read on him. And I thought the actor was... He, he was not good, but look, you have Sam Worthington in this movie. Everyone looks better by comparison. I didn't have a problem with Spider. Uh, I'll agree that the way he's written is definitely wishy-washy, but as pretty much the only human that we see, the only live-action human character that we get, other than Edie Falco, who I actually didn't like whatsoever, other than 10 seconds of some of the other ones, but he grows on me. I really didn't like him the first few times, but he grows on me quite a bit, and I think, not to turn a phrase, but this time he's our avatar going looking back at it the other way. And I think it's an interesting juxtaposition compared to how the first movie was and now this person is on the inside looking out as opposed to being on the outside looking in i do wish it was written a little bit better i don't like a lot of the choices that they make when courage comes back into play but yeah actually i was surprised that i came to like spider in this movie the first movie had to go up. The reason why it was so successful, and I don't think we really talked about this, is that the script was designed to offend as little people as possible. I think this is a bad example of cultural appropriation with the white kid with dreadlocks. Yeah. It's one of those calls. I mean, look, there's some stuff with the casting in this movie as well when you look at the other tribe and how they're portrayed that I think kind of totes the line into indecency that the first one kind of 
pitter-pattered around as best as it could. So we're seeing two of their kids fight, and one thing this movie does that really annoys me is it switches back and forth between what's important to translate into a subtitle and what's not. It's annoying as hell when there are conversations going on and there are zero subtitles, so you don't know what the fuck they're saying, and they do that at least eight times in this movie. I referenced before in another podcast, I can't remember which one it is we talked about, about the Hunt for Red October moment, and he does it exactly here, where Jake goes, you know, at some point, it all just sounds like English to me. And mid-sentence, it goes from Navi with subtitles to be in English. <laughs> you know, literally mid-sentence. So we're to take it that the entire rest of this movie is in Navi, but we, like Jake, just hear it as English in our heads. Yeah, I agree. It's the problem with all science fiction when it comes to translations and things of that nature. So I'm not going to say this one bothered me because I have enough issues with the writing that I'm not going to get dibbled up on logic. Not necessarily with this movie, but the, the first one set up somewhere... Ground rules. Jake, with full-on predator dreads, is seen teaching their kids to hunt and taking pictures with his family as he and Terry they have a night away from their kids. They see a new star, which means ships are on their way and that the sky people are returning. The ships land, and of course, all the fire that comes with it is shown wiping out the Pandora wildlife, and we're seeing mechs make their way out as Jake tries comforting Terry. You know, one thing Cameron does here that I like is... Last time I said, I mean, we had an hour and a half before we had an action scene. And here he's getting us reintroduced to the world. And I think the pacing, at least at this point, is pretty good because I think we spend maybe 20 minutes getting reacquainted. And then, boom, here comes some trauma to mess with the tribe a little bit. It was nice to have some action early on. I'm always interested when it's a James Cameron movie in space to see what ship designs he's going to have. So when they pan to the ships in space, I'm a fan of just seeing what he's going to draw from, literally draw from. Though I was kept thinking, I go, okay, if they did this much damage this time coming back, why didn't they do the damage before? But, like, I have to keep reminding myself, which is definitely not a good, you know, in the movie's favor, that the technology that they've had should have increased a certain much in this number of years. You know, the humans coming back have changed in the 15 years, 16 years, whatever it's been since. So I'm expecting a little more. So I get it. But in the way of just having something happen action-packed to get things kicked off, yeah, it works out. Fairly well, especially when Jake's like, screw this. He's back in full-on action mode and ready to take the fight back. We cut to one year later. We're seeing Navi waking up in a lab and going crazy, and it's Lyle who's finally able to calm him down. He sees that he has fangs and then just says, ain't this a bitch? We're then treated to a video Qualrich made before he died, because this is how all villains come back in these fucking movies. We gotta see these old videos that they make, of course, right before they die. And we learn that his Navi is growing in a lab as they speak. All right, reintroduction to Qualrich here. How are you feeling at this point, boys? Uh, really, this is the best you had? <laughs> yeah. I would not have been bothered by this if there were any breadcrumbs established in the first movie about him yeah. having either like a fear of death. Because the question by this, the logic would come up, okay, what happens when you get severed from your avatar? Is there any kind of contingency plan or do you just die and go completely comatose? So I was really hoping that if they were going to do this, because we knew he was coming back. I yeah. thought we were just get like literal cloning and he'd be back in his normal body. But, but yeah, I, the reason why this bothered me was that there was no legwork for this before, and I thought the the explanation was just so tacked on as being kind. It, it, it's like they pulled out their magic hat, and this was the one rabbit they kept pulling out. How do we bring people back? Avatars. That's going to be their default answer for everything, I, I fear, can't. going forward. So yeah. it, it eliminates stakes, because I know that people yes. can just come back. 
So why should I care about any of these people? Hell, there's people who die in this movie that could very well come back in the next one as avatars. Mm-hmm. I could not believe that they had a six-person writing room, and this is what they come up with to bring Qualwich back. Unless Cameron had this in his head at the time that he wrote that original film. Because he did tell Stephen Lang on that set, he's like, look, we're going to kill you here, but I have a way of bringing you back. So maybe he had it in his head the entire time. But I cannot believe that this is how they decide to bring this guy back. It's unbelievable to me. You took away everything that made Stephen Lang menacing in that first film when he gets introduced as this avatar. And then we got to remember in that first film, he hated the Na'vi. It was openly racist. Yeah. yeah. But he's got no problem being in this body that is still him at whatever point they downloaded him into it he should be a self-hating person which is never ever explored of courage in this so you had the opportunity to make it interesting but i've seen alien resurrection (laughs) (laughs) taken it to sigourney weaver and i guess some of these navi just like having tattoos when they're in the birthing pods which I don't hear he was coming back. I was wondering how they were good. I thought we were just going to see old footage of him setting up something, mm-hmm. you know, so it was all, it was all going to be like video files, something like that. Of all the ways to do it, I, I didn't jive with this. And not only that, I don't like the way it looks. I don't think of all the Navi that look great and do amazing emotive capturing, I think his is the worst. I think his just looks smooth and non-emotive and kind of boring overall. It's kind of disappointing. Not yeah. kind of. It is disappointing. And his is the least detailed when you look yeah. at from a, yeah. a translation process of the face scanning, where it looks almost unfinished. This is the middle section between pre-rendering and post-rendering. It's almost like it's not finished. Almost like it was a late-stage decision to do it this way. But it, it couldn't have been the way that it's so integrated. But, yep, I agree. But of course, his entire army gets brought back. Mm-hmm. So I guess yeah. he had some kind of business discount with Giovanni Ribisi, who... <laughs> Is in the one, that one scene, and you yeah. don't see him for the rest of the movie. I know. I thought maybe he would show up as a fucking Navi, too. Like, he's got everybody yeah. else. He was unattainable. <laughs> <laughs> Which is also dropped. That is not a no. plot point this movie whatsoever. No, it's completely dropped. Farwitz says a Marine can't be stopped. They could be killed, but all that'll happen as a result is they'll regroup in hell. We're then seeing Navi fly around and fight, and if there's one thing I'm happy we got in this reintroduction to Pandora, it's that we get this sick-ass train crash. I love this crash. I'm a sucker for train crashes in movies, and the way Cameron puts this in, it's fucking amazing. Yeah, it's a great shot. Awesome shot, especially in 3D, man. It's so immersive. Beautiful scene. I kind of wish this was what the movie was about, them doing a guerrilla stuff, basically making this a Vietnam War movie. Mm-hmm. And doing sort of like hit and runs. It's always that question of when do we get caught? Mm-hmm. This is the part I found the most interesting. This is where the only time I actually bought Jake as a both stern fighter and capable leader for the Navi. Like last time, Cameron is certainly proving he can shoot some action as these overhead shots of the ships and battle scenes are once again just pretty superb. We're seeing the kids in battle and even get a replay of the line, we're not in Kansas anymore because we've got to bring that back. He says, why so blue, as he talks about how they've been brought back to seek revenge on Jake Sully for killing their human counterparts. So they still give him these cheesy lines, but I agree with you, Ad. The way he gives these line deliveries as a Navi is not nearly as captivating as when he was a human. No, and so many of the other characters, you see those animated faces stretch and pull, constrict. Mm -hmm. Like, you get the tautness around the 
eyes and the pursing of the lips. You get muscle movement, and I don't get any of that out of his avatar. Sully is upset at his kids for messing up the mission, and he grounds his oldest from flying for a month. Natiri wonders why Jake is so hard on his kids, and he replies he's their father and it's his job. Spider is once again crowding the screen with his presence as Kiri tells her mom hi, and we're getting video evidence of her coming up with a DNA counterpart. Spider is given reassurance that he's not like his father, and what's Cameron's next shot? That of Qualwich. Hmm, I wonder where this is going. We're once again going into these family dynamics, and we're going to play the father-son thing in this movie. When they first said we, you know, there was this two-year-old boy, he was left behind, never crossed my mind that it was going to be his son. Yeah. Ever. Is the implication then that he is the product of rape? See, mm. I don't know, because once again, we have that mystery of who's his mother. Yeah. Right. It's the Albert Wesker Resident Evil problem, where you find out that he fathered children, and I'm like, oh, really? Like, <laughs> and, uh... Mm-hmm. I will say this is a compliment. They did not feel the need to drag that out as a third-act reveal. This is not the Luke, I am your father. This is like uh, Force Awakens where they say it in the first hour. (laughs) What a Star Wars comparison. I was going to say, we're we're pulling a lot of Star Wars. I I don't know why. I mean, this is the second movie in a series that look visually amazing, and part of it involves them going to a planet surrounded by water. We then cut to a meeting between Qualrich and his female general on a spider-type mech. I like these mechs that these humans are on. Those are pretty cool. Now, coincidentally, Jen and I were going through The Sopranos, and I intentionally kept away from the cast list because I just wanted to go in as cold as possible. It took a few times of her coming on screen, possibly her last time on screen, before Jen looked at me and she's like, that's Carmella. Now, we don't get much from this character other than that she's pretty cold-hearted, but while we get some interrogation from her later, something tells me that Cameron has some big plans for her in future movies. And this was mostly just set up. Adam, you said you don't like this character, right? I found it a thankless role. It's completely undermined by everything else in it, and then drops out after Horge is kind of sent on his way. So she doesn't play in the last, what, five-sixths of the movie? So it's, I don't know, I find it thankless. I didn't care for it. I didn't feel anything for it, which made me about the worst thing. I can't even call this stunt casting because this is not who I would cast no. as your standfast general. So it doesn't work on that aspect. And I kept waiting throughout the entire third act, all 90 minutes of it, <laughs> for her to come back with the giant armada of death that they have to overcome. But it never happens. There's not even a tease for a lead-in for her to come back in the third movie. It's almost like... These six writers had so many balls that they were juggling that they left one on the floor, kicked it underneath the table, and just left it there to collect dust bunnies. If they were going to do it, they should have done stunt casting. You know who they should have pulled for it? Linda Hamilton. After Dark Fate, at Dark Fate, Linda Hamilton fits right in this role. This felt to me, James Cameron saying, fuck, I should not have killed off Michelle Rodriguez. Well, Michelle Rodriguez was asked to come back. She said no, apparently. Well, she's got her own family now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm I, I still going with, with my initial instinct. I think this is set up. I think she is coming back in the third, and I think she's going to be a big bad in the third. I think with the, the goals of the human, the earthlings, I think with their going away from just trying to mine an ore to now going for terraforming and everlasting mm-hmm. life, I do think that there's going to be a much more overarching. And, yeah, I could definitely see her being a big part of it, or at least a cog with a big mother type coming down the road. I also don't get the sense she's the end-all, be-all authority. I feel like they're saving someone above her, and maybe that's where he calls a favor to Schwarzenegger. Maybe, but I'm just looking at this. I'm like, look, we have eight fucking movies to get through here, theoretically. We'll talk about at the end whether that's going to happen or not, but 
I think a big part of the reason why this movie is, I'm not going to say underperforming because I think that's kind of being blown out of proportion, but not making as much as they were thinking is because there's a lot of work to do here when you come to this movie. And when you went to those Star Wars movies, nobody thought there would be a second. And then after the second, we knew there was going to be a third. But that's okay to prepare for. How do you prepare to go into a second of a series that's eight movies long, and you know that going in? And I know someone's going to say Marvel, but that's a different character each and every movie. I don't know. Do you guys agree with that, that maybe there's just too much work that people have going in here? I think the thing is, the first Avatar had the you've-never-seen-anything-like-it cachet to it. And I do think there's a certain amount of question about the ability to repeat that and borderline skepticism. You've also got to remember, there's still a certain percentage of audiences that don't want to go to the theater whether it's because of COVID, whether it's because of streaming, making it accessible. Because I, I do think there is also a certain amount of people that are burned out by disrespectful audience members. So I think that there's a lot of factors at play to explain why the movie's not doing as well. And also, people are not necessarily attached to these characters in the way that yeah. they are you know, a Star Wars, where people have characters like Luke and Leia, or even in the new movies, a Rey to follow. There's no one here. I mean, I guess it would be in the Natiri, but you don't see people wearing T-shirts with quotes from Jake Sully on them. No. I think there's a couple things to it. One, movie's three hours plus long, you know, and you've lost, what, two showings a day per screen. That brings up a good point. There's two characters that we know, and that's Jake and Natiri. Other than that, we have a movie centered around all new characters we haven't seen before. And you sure don't sell that in trailers and commercials in a way that, yeah, Marvel movies are its own thing, but you almost feel like you have to go now. Because if I miss the one coming out this month, the one that I really want to see in three months, I might not understand. Mm-hmm. You know, So they've almost built a you have to see X in case you want to go see Y and Z. But I mean, let's not forget, this thing did open almost double what the original one did. The original Avatar only opened to $75 million. It's tough, though, because I don't think this is going to play for four months like the original one did. Um, but I do think that this one is, I don't know, it, there's no way you can call this movie a bust, but everybody's going to try to call it a bust. If it doesn't beat the original, if it doesn't beat Jurassic World or Fast 7 or something like that, it's going to be deemed a bust, and I think that's tough. I mean, the star of Avatar is Pandora, and I think that's what may be the hardest thing for them to market. It's got to be come see this world. Yeah, and when we went to the IMAX theater, I looked up and I saw all the screens that were playing movies, and all but two were playing Avatar Way of the Water. One was playing Wakanda Forever, and one was playing The Menu, and the rest was all Avatar. We're hearing about the plans to make a new Earth frontier here on Pandora, and in order to do that, the entire Navi race needs to be exterminated, according to Carmela. And yes, I will be calling her Carmela throughout this entire podcast, because that's all I know her as. Why is Pandora, the third moon, fifth moon, whatever it is, that has unbreathable air, the perfect place to relocate humanity? We can't even breathe here. Yeah, this is like the whole thing of colonizing Mars in Total Recall. They have to build buildings because every time people get sucked out into the atmosphere, they turn into Tex Avery cartoons. <laughs> I just needed a little line that maybe the unobtainium is something they could use to terraform. Something. Ugh. Yeah, even like, a plan to turn people into Navi so that they can come here or something. Like, something like that. At least give yeah, a cool. reason why. I thought it was going to be like only the rich can afford it because you have to become an avatar to live here. And we were going to get like Elysium 2.0. 
something like that. Took is enjoying being in the wildlife as she lays in the foliage when she's interrupted by Spider, who says they better get a move on. The kids are finding themselves in some trouble as Qualwitch and his men set up camp, and they're all hiding from him. Jake, meanwhile, tells them to not make a sound as he's on his way to help them, but of course they get spotted, and Qualwitch spots Spider, real name Miles, and his general points out that one of them has four fingers, and as Spider wants to help, Qualwitch watches video footage, and in a chilling bit of demented irony, Qualwitch's avatar crushes the real Crawwitch's skull. I'm, I'm going to say, with this scene and a few more I'll point out as we go, and I'm going to say this is a compliment. This movie goes into some dark places, places I haven't seen Cameron dare to tread for quite some time. And for that, I respect him. Yep, no argument here. This is one of them where he's seeing what happened to himself. And yeah, mm-hmm. that, that moment of kind of like a screw that guy. And just that crushing of the skull. It's... It, Neat moment. I think we're going to be all over the place with this movie in a lot of different areas, but there's some huge highlights, and this is one of them. Even him just looking at that body, seeing the arrows, and you just you know that's going to come back later. Yeah, I, I really like some of the stuff he does here. I don't know. I was kind of, I don't want to say impressed, but I, I thought that was a cool visual to do, and that was also a nice Terminator reference. Yeah, I thought of that too, the way he was holding it. Yeah, a lot yeah exactly. Of the, this entire movie is James Cameron riffing on himself, mm-hmm. which I thought was Very a good much. I think there's bits you can pull from almost every one of his movies, not just Avatar. We're seeing Jake be mighty stealthy as he arrives to rescue his kids and take a few people out with an axe, but it doesn't last long as he's spotted and then the fight goes on. Pretty good battle here with kids biting arms, smoke bombs, and guns going off, and Cameron does do a nice job of distinguishing who's who. That was one part of this movie that I was worried about, is we're seeing all these characters... And I still don't really know all their names, but at least I know who's who when they're in these battles. I'm seeing these blue people fight these other blue people. I I can distinguish them. And I think that's why the way that they're dressed and the tattoos, things like that, that's where I think they come into play as well. Good point. Because it's a way to distinguish it from the Transformers metal on metal, what the hell am I seeing type of fight. Mm -hmm. Here you know what you're seeing throughout. And this is another, we've got another action scene. we got, you know, the kids are playing. And think about the interaction here. We have a human body. we got the kid Navi. we got the adult Navi. we got the soldiers. I'm never confused as to what I'm seeing. And with this much going on, that's pretty amazing. Because normally this is just throw color up on screen and fighty, fighty, splashy, splashy. Yeah, I'm grateful as someone who is color deficient visually that I can distinguish one group of blue cats from the other. It's also helped by one group of them is wearing camo. Krawitz dares Nateri to come out and do some unfinished business, but all Krawitz ends up with after this battle is Spider, and that's a losing exchange no matter how you look at it. Sorry. We cut to Spider in captivity, speaking Navi and begging to be let out. Jake comes up with the idea to leave because he cannot keep protecting his family if they stay. And Atiri's begging Jake to not leave their home, but Jake says that they are in too much danger if they stay. I thought this was an overreaction and kind of setting up the wrong kind of bait because there's never a scene where Quaritch and company do an immediate pillage on their village. How's that for some rhyming? Nice. Because CCH Pounder is in one scene and gone. Yeah. yeah. There comes a point where there, there was a huge disconnect between the tribe that they joined and the one that they left behind. So they almost become an, basically, not basically, it is, they become an afterthought. What made him so sure that Quaritch would find them? Yeah, I mean, the only thing that he had is, hey, Spider knows where we are, because they're now hidden in the Hallelujah Mountains, 
And yeah, you bring up a good point. If they're forgotten. The tribe is an afterthought. James Cameron is finally able to bring his underwater world that he loves so much. And James Cameron wants to leave the forest behind as quick as he can and get to that world. And I understand it. I mean, the water is what he absolutely loves. Watches documentaries. This movie, we're only, what, 30 minutes in right now? <laughs> we're leaving the forest Navi tribe behind, and we're going to leave them behind. And not to jump to the end, but at the end of the movie, we're still going to leave them behind. I mean, James Cameron is, seems to be reframing where Avatar is going to go from here on out. And I wasn't expecting that. I also wasn't expecting this series to... He, he got so pissed off that people kept comparing it to Avatar The Last Airbender that he is going out of his way to set up all four elements I think we will see at some point. <laughs> there will be a fire tribe of Navi, and there will be a earth tribe of Navi that we will see sometime. Right down to Kiri might as well be Aang with what they're setting up. Where she will combine all the different elements combined, and she will fight Stephen Lang in the fifth movie, and then she will proceed to die for all of the sins of Navi and Sam Worthington's no-acting ass, and she will be resurrected three days later. That will be the end of this series. And ten years from now, when I've proven right, I will take my receipts then. <laughs> Put this in the archive. James Cameron has come out, though, and he has said that one thing he wanted to do with this movie was he got so sick of people saying, oh, the first Avatar is predictable. You knew what was going to happen. He wanted this one to be unpredictable. And Adam, well, I think... <laughs> well, I think in this way, he's kind of on point. And Adam pointed it out in that I was not expecting it to really kind of take this turn where the bad guy from the last movie, who's now a Navi pushes them out. I knew he was going to end up here because I've seen a trailer or two of it, but I didn't know how. So Jake swears that his family is his fortress. Meanwhile, Spider is being interrogated by Carmela, but she is not getting anywhere. You got a total recall. This was the recall machine. <laughs> it absolutely was. Kravitz says that he'll try the personal angle as Carmela tells him that Spider is not his son. But Kravitz tells him that he's got a hell of a lot of heart and he respects that. He then tells him that he realizes that the real Kravitz was not much of a father. And they aren't anything to each other. But he can't get him out of there as Spider just rides along. Oh, this avatar as his dad. I don't know, Adam. I, I, I can't go with you with this character. I just can't. Jake and his family leave their home, and he says in voiceover that the leader must die so that he can leave, and they're off to the Metkayana. Is that how we're saying it here? I don't know. I just saw these people in uh, Wakanda Forever just a few weeks ago, though, didn't I? <laughs> Yeah, this is unfortunate timing than this. No shit. Disney could not have picked a a worse, or better in some case, because look, Black Panther's made more money than this. At least for now, we'll need to be seeing when this is all said and done, but you could not have planned this better. (laughs) They're off to the eastern seaboard of Pandora, and they're on the beach, and they have their first meeting with the new race of grief people. Now, these people are green and have a bit of an attitude, but I like how Cameron is kind of switching things up here. If the Navi are blue and they're all about the land, these reef people, they're green and they're all about the water. I've got to say, I love the coloring of these people. I and, Adams, they match the aquamarine of the water. Mm-hmm. It is, they are that blue-green. They are like an exact match to the water around them. And it took me a minute before I noticed that, and I thought it was a beautiful choice. <laughs> what I did not expect was who we get as the female leader of this tribe, about the only Navi person we have with a voluptuous chest that James Cameron has put on screen before, and this time it's a pregnant Miss Winslet. Now, I had totally forgotten that she was in this. 
And when I was doing research for this podcast, meaning going and double-checking articles against Wikipedia and IMDb because I don't trust those things with anything. I want to make sure I have a source. That's when I found out, and I sent Jen a text because I found it during work, and that's when I found out that this was actually Kate Winslet in this role. And you know what? I like her in this movie, and I don't know how many articles have pointed out that this woman had broken the record of holding her breath underwater, the Tom Cruise record from Rogue Nation. But you know what? I like her in this. She's very good. Her and Cliff Curtis. Matt, we've talked about Cliff Curtis before, speaking of The Last Airbender. <laughs> I, I, I like them a lot as a couple, and I do like the fact that her and Natiri flat out fucking hate each other. <laughs> what I don't like is that it doesn't look enough like her to me. You know, I, it the, looks enough like her. That's her I, chest. <laughs> I'm not only being uh, a, a child. Go ahead, <laughs> dude. Straight man, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but come on. I mean, it's there's a parody out there called Bloobs, okay? <laughs> but they play up the sensuality part of the breasts on all the nubby quite a bit. And they're all very diminutive sizes or very perky type sizes where, yes, she's pregnant, but that's a voluptuous chest on no other character but the Kate Winslet character. <laughs> Yeah, and for those of you wondering how the gay man on this podcast recognized those boobs, because I'm a gay man, I've seen Titanic 50 times. <laughs> but I hate, I hate to say this, I think she's terrible. And really? I think she stands out more than anybody. For one thing, I'm bothered by her casting just because of the racial component. Everyone else is of some yeah. other descent in that tribe, Cliff Curtis included. So she does stick out in that regard. But also, I think some of her dialect and accent go in and out throughout this movie. It does. And I, I found that very distracting. I, I, and I spent the whole movie going, I know Kate Winslet's in this. And I waited until five minutes out. I'm like, I guess she's the post credit scene. Is she going to be the Thanos of this, <laughs> of this series? Even the voice uh, of Awa. Yeah, I, well, that's what I thought. I thought she was going to be just like a, a, a voiceover performance. Maybe she's the mother of Spider. Mm. Uh. That for a reveal, but... When I realized it was her, I'm like, all right, well, now that I see those boobs, it makes total sense. But, yeah, you're right. She's the only one that really doesn't have much resemblance to the real-life actor. So she stands out in that regard as well. The first meeting, as you can imagine, does not go well, even if Loke takes quite a liking to Sierra. The Metcaina, though, they ask why they've come, and after an explanation of them trying to find shelter, they're told that their four skills won't be of any use to them and that they have demon blood due to their hands. And, boy, isn't this common. The two wives just don't like one another. <laughs> After being told that they cannot bring their war to the seas, Jake responds all he wants to do is keep his family safe. This causes Tonawari and Ronald to accept them into the tribe and tells the kids to teach them the way of the water. So we get the title in. Jake tells his family to be on their best behavior, and Tope says that she just wants to go home, but she's then told that this is their home now. We get a montage of everyone learning the way of the water, and Cameron sure loves lingering in this sea and all the wildlife contained in it, doesn't he? If we learned a lot about Pandora last time, we're learning a lot about the underwater because, as Adam mentioned last podcast, Cameron has taken quite a liking to go on deep sea diving and seeing all this wildlife up close. He's once again trying to make a National Geographic nature film, but this time with the water. Adam, were you going with this? I was, but you want to take this movie from three hours down to 2.30, 2.20? All you have to do is shorten up these long seats of them underwater. They're beautiful. They're gorgeous. The only thing, though, is it feels underwater like what we had above water last film. Felt like he took those undersea anemones 
it felt like he took those underwater and put them above water. Now we're just putting them back underwater. I mean, it's beautiful. It is beautifully shot, but it felt alien last time. Now it just feels like they're large and underwater. And it feels like things that I could see here is the only thing. And that's me looking for a criticism because when it's going on, when it's on screen and I'm looking at it, wow. I am absolutely blown away. But I'm somebody that can sit and watch a Jacques Cousteau documentary and be very pleasantly happy just sitting back for two hours and watching one. So this is gorgeous. And this is exactly what the movie I think James Cameron wanted to make is this right here. Someone who has quite a few National Geographic documentaries on the television as I'm doing other things, I was not bothered by how long these scenes go on because this is where I think the movie's much like the first one, I think that's where a lot of the staying power is, is in the visual components and the immersiveness of the 3D, which is just as good as the first from my recollection. My problem is all the beats that they do underwater and the story from here on out, I think leaves a lot to be desired because it turns into basically the same movie as the first one where you have to tame the animals underwater, you have to form the bond, and then it turns into James Cameron must love Free Willy. Oh, we'll get there. <laughs> we haven't gotten there yet. Save it. I will say, Cameron does do something that Spielberg did to great effect in Jaws way back in 75 that I love. He uses that half-on-surface, half-underwater shot to both beautiful and dramatic effect yes. in the entire movie. I love when he does that. Yeah, the transition, even from above yes. water to in water, mm-hmm. it just, it's seamless. But yes, that shot where it's like a Wyland painting or a Wyland piece of art mm-hmm. where it just bisects the screen. Yeah, completely agree. The kids are getting to know each other as Kiri is getting to know the life under the surface. Spider is getting a talking to by Quawitch, meanwhile, as they once again touch down and Quawitch says that they need to think Navi. Spider laughs at his use of the language, so Quawitch makes him the interpreter. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> God. This is when they just they could not decide what they were going to do with Exactly. You could tell that however it was planned has been rewritten and rewritten by each of these people over and over from beginning to end of this film. And they give this kid way too much of a leash for being a prisoner of war. Absolutely. Where I'm like, all right, you guys are just stupid for all the mayhem he causes later on because you didn't keep him in the jail cell or on, like, a shock collar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We've already established that Qualwich hates this kid, so why why are we even bothering giving him that leash? And they hate each other until they don't, but then they hate each other again, but then they don't again. This, you know what, Edie Falco should have put a gun to the kid's head and made Qualich go do what she wanted and needed to get done. Have mm-hmm. some steaks with this kid, but as it is, it's just like a vegetarian restaurant. There's no steaks with them. Meanwhile, we're getting the Jake getting to know wildlife scenes all over again, this time on the water, and you guys already <laughs> talked about that a little bit earlier. Meanwhile, Sierra and Lope, they go for a dive as the kids are then taught how to breathe and let their minds go clear while diving under the water. Spider once again makes fun of Qualwich for not being as upscale as the Navi people as they kill animals with their bare hands as opposed to shooting them. So Qualwich attacks the Banshee, and he goes off a cliff with it only to emerge above the cliff riding the Banshee. Mm. Way too convenient. Absolutely, it, dude. It it meant something last time for them to climb up those mountains mm-hmm. to go and do it. And to me, this scene takes away from how just special that felt in the last one. You're drawing parallels between college and Jake even by doing this type of scene this way. And I just, I don't like it. Meanwhile, Jake is earning respect amongst the tribe. And we're hearing that the sea is now their home. And during this speech, one thing becomes very, very clear. 
this score is mounds of improvement over the last one. It's not as in your <laughs> face and full of chance as the last one, and it really enhances things such as the underwater enchantment. I really dug the score better this time than last time. Matt, you were on my side last time. What about this time? I think I'm with you as well, and I have to say that I don't know who the composer was for this. I didn't recognize the name. And the name, he was a guy who was, he produced the score last time, and he was also in the studio during the Titanic score. I think he helped with that as well. But he was basically an assistant of Horner. Horner was tapped to do this score, but after he uh, tragically died in that plane crash in 15, they got this guy to do it, and he puts the old themes in when they're needed, and these new themes, I think, are really, really good. Yeah, Simon Franklin, I believe is yeah. who it is. And I wonder if there was some work that Horner had already started on it, because I feel like he took that and just kept that momentum going. And the reason is, I feel like I've heard some of this music in the Pandora world at Animal Kingdom, and that's why I think that. I know some of it is in the Flight of the Banshee ride. In fact, the entire the, the score at the end of this movie is how that ride ends as well. So some of it, I think, is repurposed and Horner had already written, because he wrote the score for that land as well, I believe, just when you're walking through it. But it's nicely done. Again, it's not overwhelming. It's not in your face, but it's not about the music like it is, say, with a Nolan film, where the score is part of the movie. To me, the score here is just not supposed to take away from the visuals. We're seeing Kiri really taking a liking to the sea as she's just underwater looking at the sand. But this causes the other kids to ask if she's a freak, and then a fight ensues as Lo punches the other kid while defending his sister, and Kiri is just getting a massive kick out of this. I love seeing her underwater just checking out yeah. the sand in the sea. My father growing up, he was a diver. He did underwater demolition. He did a lot of other stuff underwater. Garrett, you know Contraloma Reservoir out here. He helped when there was a plane that crashed into it back when I was growing up as a kid. So we always had scuba tanks and stuff around. And I would hook up, you know, myself. I would put on his scuba tank, put on the gear. And I would sit in my pool in my backyard for two, two and a half hours until that air tank ran dry. There's something about just being under the water. And she does the same thing later. And because it felt personal to me, it really touched me. But just something about being underwater, and just that feeling. Something about it felt right, felt real. I feel like James Cameron is really working out, as he gets into his later years, some of his emotions here through this. I agree. I mean, he did say, writing this, he, as a father of a teenager, and Adam, you're about ready to find out yourself. It's yeah, a pain. One, yeah. yeah, it could be a pain in the ass, and a lot of this is him getting a lot of that frustration out. A lot like how we mentioned, Stephen King wrote his frustration at his kids always interfering with him writing his books. So you mentioned Stephen King, and that's actually a great segue, because we have Stephen King bullies. In bullies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> greasers. <laughs> yeah. The greasers, the pranksters, the basically blue flash thompsons these are the archetypical things that i can't stand i hate bullies in movies to begin with as a trope i think it's a lazy way to create tension amongst groups and nothing they do here convinces me otherwise and these are the kind of scenes that are where i really question the writing because it's just there's only so many times you can go back to that well and i get it's an ocean but <laughs> that that well's been rung pretty dry and i'm i'm sick of seeing it and th these are where I really feel the three hours are all these detours into melodrama. Well, I'll say this. I think what, what this scene does to me, not necessarily the bowling part, because I agree with you on that, but I think what it does is these two, Loke and Kiri, they haven't really had many scenes of showing that they love each other. And this actually shows that they are a quote-unquote family, and he does love her to the point where he'll defend her to no end. And so with that, I kind of have to go against you. But when it comes to this fight, yeah, I'm totally with you on that. Jake interferes and insists Loke apologize for hitting the chief's son. 
because you don't want to do that. But before he does, he gets the one laugh out of me that I had this entire movie. He asks how the other one looks, and when Loke says worse, Jake responds, that's good. (laughs) (laughs) I laugh pretty hard at that. Natiri tries comforting Kiri as she wonders why she can't be like everyone else. The kids make up and then go on an underwater adventure. Loke tries hunting, but he ends up pissing off the underwater life too, and then getting (laughs) chased by one predatory species until, oh boy, a Tunkin comes and rescues him. It's always a bigger fish. (laughs) (laughs) Very well done, guys. I know we all thought the exact same thing (laughs) would happen in the theater. See, this was a scene I missed in the, when I saw it the first time. So when I saw this, I'm like, oh, so that's how this whale comes into his life. There go my fish. <laughs> he wakes up on this creature and then thanks him for saving his life and proclaims him a friend. He goes for a ride underwater with the Tonkin, and Cameron does this thing where every time he cuts to this creature's eye, we're hearing whale effects in the background. I, the Tonkin. This really threw me for a loop. And Matt, you can go ahead and go into your Free Willy <laughs> comparison here. But at one point, we have, we're not there yet, but we flat out stopped this movie to a grinding halt to explore this species. Uh, I gotta say, as an unpredictable thing that Cameron says in the press, as someone who didn't think I can get surprised, this surprised me. I was not expecting to take this detour. I thought the Free Willy comparison wrote itself. I wasn't really prepared for a dissertation on the... Uh, I mean, that'll be a retrospective someday. I'm sure once we're run out of shit to cover. But but yeah, th- th- this is where that whole, like, oh, the two outsiders bonding, that one's a full-on outcast from his society. I had a good comparison, but it just escaped my mind. Like, a lot of things in that writer's room, apparently, <laughs> were just left on the cutting room floor. It's just like, oh, I have more things to say about later. But Adam, what you, would you feel about that? Takes an interesting detour. Sure wasn't expecting it. I'll say I've swam with dolphins. I've swam with stingrays. I've swam with sharks. And it is a magical, otherworldly type experience. And I think that's what he's trying to portray. But it's awkward, especially when we start, I guess, having telepathy between, you know, from these whales. Wasn't expecting that. It's an interesting way to go. I don't hate it later. It's strange. We got a couple Pinocchios this year, and we could have had a Monstro show up here. It's a choice. Definitely a choice. <laughs> you got a fucking Avatar The Last Airbender. This is freaking Appa. Jake finds Kiri, who's very sad, as Loka arrives back to the tribe, and Atiri has to hold back from taking out his eyeballs out of anger, as she says. Loka apologizes as he puts it on no one else but himself that he got separated from the other kids. This bonds him with the other Mekaina people. Loke finds the Tunkin, and the jumps here are just superbly filmed. I do like these jumps. We did see these a little bit in the trailer, but we mentioned last time, boys, that the scale was so well done. And here, as he's jumping up and jumping down and the whales here, it looks perfectly scaled, doesn't it? Yeah. And then there's another trick that Cameron does here that I love. He, he films this scene upside down from the surface. So when Loke puts his hand on the surface, it throws you off for a bit, making you think yeah. that he's on the bottom. But the camera swoops around and you realize you are indeed on the surface of the water. Just an immersively, massively well thought out effect that I really dug. And it, it's in this part way through this film, and it happened last time, I forget I'm watching 3D because mm-hmm. it looks like I'm just looking at the real world. Now, I don't know if either of you had this, but the one that I saw, I guess, had the high frame rate that oh, they did. yeah. And I don't know if I cared for it. Maybe some of that felt like the smoothing you get on TVs nowadays. But there felt like a couple full-blown scenes here and there where there was no 3D going on. 
and I would actually lift up my glasses and go, yeah, there's no blur. There's no 3D going on in this scene, which I found interesting or strange, and I don't know if it was a problem at the theater or there was just, hey, we didn't render this one this way. But this shot specifically, as you're talking about, when it happened, I was like, um, don't know what's going on. When it spun, just beautiful. He's still a, an amazing filmmaker. I do think he's 30 years into his craft, still trying to do some things. He's about 50 years in at this point. I was never bothered by the frame rate. It was noticeable. I wasn't either. But it wasn't like the first Hobbit movie where I thought it was yeah. borderline detrimental to my experience. Here, there's only a couple instances where I think you can catch it speeding up, where the editing is just a bit more frantic, and you'll notice some shots go on a bit longer than others. Speaking of Finding Nemo, that's all I think of when the dolphins are jumping up and down, talking to each other, recapping the movie. That's what I was thinking of in this movie. <laughs> but thankfully, one thing that this movie does that the stops doing, that the first movie never stops, is Worthington's narrations dissipate once you get to this island, or the, this uh, this tribe. Uh, for mm-hmm. some time, which was uh, whale music to my ears. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, the other kids, they're seeing an eclipse from the water, and of course they connect to what is eventually named the spirit tree, or as I call it, the seaweed of souls. <laughs> <laughs> this is when it becomes apparent, <laughs> apparent family film, um, just how many things he's repeating from the last one. Yeah. And I know in a sequel you're going to do that with something. You've got to repeat and enhance. But, man, doing the exact same. I mean, it looks like a tree underwater. This yeah. is just one more thing that's too much. Yeah, so is every tribe going to have their yep. tree? Like, are they going to stick their dicks, I mean, their hair, in uh, <laughs> into a fire pit? It was weird. When I saw this, I'm like, okay, is he going to play that exact, oh, God, he is going to play that exact yep. beat except underwater. But this is when Kiri, she sees visions of grace, and when she asks why she's different and who her father is, this is when Kiri loses it underwater and needs to be brought to the surface. And this all seems to be something, again, and this is shit I fucking complain about all the time with Marvel. This is just something Cameron's saving for the sequels. He's introducing it here, and we're going to get this all fleshed out two, three films down the line. Yeah, that's exactly my thought. I'm like, oh, wait, who's my father? Oh. Wait, sorry, signal's cutting out. I'll talk, I'll, I'll talk to you in two years. I'm telling you, the big twist is going to be there is no father. Uh, she's a Skywalker. Oh, boy. Or, no, she's a Palpatine. <laughs> Somehow, Quaritch <Horace> returned. <laughs> oh, shit! Turns out that Kiri had a seizure underwater. Nateri and Ronald, they get into it again. As Jake is warned, if she seizes underwater again, it could kill her. Ronald, meanwhile, she saves her, but their efforts in doing so are what alerts Quawich to their location. So that's why we're introduced to the spirit tree. It's just so that we can get Quawich to find out where they are. Yeah, it's, it's like a homing beacon, basically. Pretty much, yeah. Spider is again trying to teach Quawich the Nav- Navi language. Is this bonding? As they find Jake's living no, signal. Why is doing this at his own fruition? Yeah. Ugh. So stupid. Krawitz gets the ship that he asked for and then takes over a whaling vessel whose inhabitants are hunting Tumkin in efforts to harvest an anti-aging enzyme. This is adding a dimension to this movie that I frankly was not expecting. Again, we've gone way past what these kids are experiencing. Now we're going to this whaling vessel where we're going to talk about anti-aging. Which 
is far more compelling than Unobtainium. This should have been what they started with in the first movie. I also don't understand. We have Free Willy, and now it turns into Moby Dick, because we have Captain yes. Ahab. We have Australian Captain Ahab. Mm-hmm. And what's his name from Flight of the Concords, who sticks out like a sore thumb? <laughs> Uh, Jermaine Clement. I don't know why he's here. These characters add nothing. Absolutely. And and much like the first one, this movie's got way too many fucking characters. Yep. Yes. There's way too many siblings. There's way too many other kids in the tribe. There's too many of Korch's howling commandos. It's a huge problem. And I could excuse that. Look, you got a three hour movie. I'll give you the carte blanche to flesh out these characters, but he doesn't. He spends most of his time making a National Geographic documentary mixed with Ferngully, The Last Ocean. <laughs> I don't think Cameron, you know, to your point, I don't think Cameron can really write a good story around more than maybe four characters, five at the most, and I think that's part of the issue. I think he stretched himself just with too many people that he can't, I think he loses interest. You know, I think he's got ADD in his writing as much as anything else, and he's just moving on, moving on, moving on. But whales, we're whalers on the moon. We get in a harpoon. <laughs> Futurama. Yes. <laughs> I wasn't expecting us to go into a CNN expose on whalers and ambergris, but that's kind of what we get right here. I think Matt nailed it. It's fucking Moby Dick. He's putting Moby Dick in this movie, and... Mm. <sighs> As Quaritch goes over where his target is, and the captain says all this boat was here for is Tunkin' hunting, hmm, I wonder where this is going. We see and hear, according to Jake's voiceover, that the Tunkin' have come home, and of course Cameron lingers on this for yet another set of minutes, as these whales are on their way home. But this is interrupted by Quaritch and his men, as they take over the island, and according to Spider, they're saying that no one there knows anything. Spider insists to not be part of it and pleads with Crawitz to stop and that everything they're doing there is wrong. Crawitz insists on lighting the hooches and again, Cameron just lingers on this dead wildlife and burned down villages. It's like, you're going to feel this no matter what. Yeah, I'm going to make you feel because I'm going to shoot this fish for no reason. Exactly. (laughs) Just to prove these guys are scumbags. (laughs) Look, hooks onto the spirit tree and sees the Tunkin taken out and the revenge that they sought at the whalers who did this. And Loke emerges to embrace the Tunkin as he tells him, it'll be okay. So he's seen the way that this Tunkin's family was taken out by these whalers and the revenge. And so he's a whale now? or (laughs) Revenge is not the Jedi way, apparently. (laughs) That current is the path to the dark side. Yeah, yeah, let's remember, this whale is cast aside from its pod because while they were all killed, it was against their rules to fight back in any way because violence is not the answer. Yep. Yeah, they're porpoise fists, like pacifists. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. So does this count like freaking Batman where it's like, it didn't fight back, but it did hurl itself into the path of the torpedo. So I guess it counts. <laughs> Tonawari sits Loke down and tells him that killing, no matter how justified, only brings more killing and is unjustified, as you guys mentioned. Loke then tells Sierra of his plan to help the Tunkin and that the other Medikaian tribe won't go along with the plan because they don't like that he's not part of their species. And again, this movie has just taken on a whole new plot, one that will rule the rest of the runtime, and one that, again, I just wasn't expecting. We're saving the whales here. Yeah, the difference is that at least took place in San Francisco, and it was humorous. This movie's joyless for a lot of it. Very much so. It's not in a Zack Snyder way, as far as just being dour to look at and depressing, but it's got that same sort of self-righteousness. 
Yes, it absolutely does. And I mentioned earlier, you know, there was one line that made me laugh this entire movie. I said a lot of bad things about the writing last movie, a lot of bad things about the dialogue, but at least he tried keeping that upbeat. There is nothing, no joy to be had, as you mentioned. The ship tags the Tunkin and head down to track and attack. They're telling Spider what they're doing, which in turn means that they're telling us. So basically, and I think I finally figured out what Spider's here for. He's here so that we know exactly what's going on, but it's exposition told to a character who is supposed to be imprisoned. He's our avatar. Yeah, I wish somebody short-circuited that pod then. You're not kidding. I'm sorry to turn to Garrett. As the movie goes on, <laughs> I get more and more annoyed with this character. And then when he, then when he gets to the last thing he does, oh, I'm God. like, fucking kidding I, I probably said are you fucking kidding me out loud to the point where someone in front of me turned around to look at me that's amazing <laughs> they're taking out the Tonkin and Cameron is shooting it from all angles while also playing the same theme that was played while the Tree of Souls was taken out last time I mean this is really trying to hit you and hit you hard on the heart we're seeing the harvesting of Tonkins and the results of it and it has taken the killing of the Tonkin to make the Medikian join in the fight which Jake tries talking them out of by holding up the harpoon and convincing them to save their families by leaving. So he's telling these people to pretty much run like he did. Yep. Because <laughs> that's the answer. Yeah, it's, uh, do as I say and as I do. There you go. Natiri tells Jake that they must fight, while Jake says that's exactly what they want them to do. And then Loke and the rest of the kids, they get on a Tunkin and they see that the humans are back to attack. It's when the kids are in danger that Jack finally decides to attack... And then what's next is a nearly hour-long battle. And again, we've been beating this drum since last week, but no matter what we have to say about Cameron and this movie, you can't deny that the guy knows how to shoot action. And this is one pretty kick-ass action scene until it turns into a complete rehash of Titanic's final third. But we'll get there. <laughs> the character's being handcuffed to a single I cannot believe he did that. <laughs> oh, to, to me, it was the air bubble uh, cabin. <laughs> filling up with water. <sighs> I gotta say, you know, you have to admit, Cameron has some pretty big brass balls to take a movie that was the source of nightmares and the worst cases of PTSD for its cast and crew. And as somebody who has a friend who worked on that movie, I can tell you, he has never been the same since he worked on that movie. Working on that movie really fucked him up. And he's completely reenacting it in this sequel to the biggest money-making movie ever made. It's fucking crazy that he went back here. It's making me smile in the movie theater. <laughs> Is it? When I'm recognizing shots, I'm like, oh, he's doing... I'm just... I'm waiting for Winslet's character to show up. It's too bad they're waiting outside for it, but... <laughs> yeah. So did they just stand there and watch this whole... Did they never get involved? Did they just say, fuck this, we're going, we're going back? Thank <laughs> you, guys. I'm going home. A couple of highlights out of this last hour. I, I, I like when the whaler got his arm cut off. That was a big... Okay, that was fucking awesome. Yeah, that was badass. Yeah, and, and it was the only thing that really got a huge reaction out of the crowd that I was with. I was going to ask if your crowds were animated, because my crowd was ridiculously animated through this entire ending, which I had people clapping, cheering, hooting aloud when certain things were going on. And when Natiri got involved, wow, I must have had a girl power movement in the entire back third of the theater. Because <laughs> yeah, the they could, movement. <laughs> I mean, every time she would shoot some arrow, it was like, fuck yeah, they were into it. Well, we're going to get there in a bit, but I just want to talk about the set of action scenes here. I love when the arm got cut off, and I honestly was not expecting one of the kids to die. Oh, wow. Yeah, that hurt. Quabbit says that a deal can be made, just like last time, with his daughters being held captive. The deal is, is them for him, and Jake enters the ship ready for battle. 
the ship that's getting ready to sink, by the way. <laughs> the fight is on, but when Krawitz takes Kiri hostage, here comes Atiri to grab Spider. A standoff happens, and she threatens to slice his throat. I thought she was going to do it. I was hoping she would do it. Mama Tiger did Terry losing her shit? <sighs> wow. And this is the character I've been begging to get involved in this movie. She's fucking non-existent. We're seeing whales. We're seeing spider. We're seeing everything I don't want to see. And here she is. And I got to say, when she does show up on screen, it does make an impact. To be honest, I was really riveted by this last hour as far as how it's paced, how it mm-hmm. moves. There's a lot of stuff going on. I'm not going to say I felt something when the sun died. I felt it with Zoe Zaldana's reaction, not necessarily the character yeah. himself dying. So testament to that. Maybe this is just the nihilist in me. I thought the ship was going to blow up and they all die. That's a fucking David Fincher nihilism if I, I ever heard. There's more avatars, apparently. They could all come back. <laughs> <laughs> she, I thought she was actually going to kill him. I thought she was going to kill Spider, and that's how they got rid of him. But as impressive as it is, Sam Worthington still can't he still can't emote. I know he tries, but A for effort, F for no fucking way. Instead of slicing his throat, Natiri ends up cutting his chest. Then this causes the battle between the Jake and Qualwich as Navi to occur. As the Titanic continues to sink, and the kids find their way out of danger by finding a board big enough for more than one person. The only thing that would make this funnier is if they if they put a jacket on her to keep her warm. I know. <laughs> Meanwhile, Crawitz head scissors Jake underwater, but he finds a way out and clamps on a sleeper. No, this is not a wrestling podcast. I don't know. This fight, I like the last fight better in the first film. Uh, hard disagree. I think this final hour far exceeds the first one. Oh, I see. Overall, the final hour blows that other one away. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying the fight between the two here, I just don't like. As Matt said it, this last hour is so damn riveting. I will agree that Jake and Quaritch here at the end, not quite as intense as it was before. I thought it was going to come down to Natiri and Quaritch, because as he said, the rematch, you and me, or whatever it was, I wanted her to kill him again. I wanted her, not even to, but maybe just with a fistful of arrows. I will do this every time you come back. You know, something of that sort is what I was getting. I don't need Jake to kill him. I need Natiri to kill him. She's the one that stood up for the family. As Matt put it eloquently before, I don't know if it was the son that got me as much as Zoe Saldana's reaction. Just freaking stirred something into me. This action scene, it amazed me because... The other three-hour epic movie the last couple years also finished with a good 50, 55 minutes of nothing but a battle at the end. And this one does as well, just with much fewer characters. And it works. I can't believe how well it works, but it works really, really well. I mean, all he had to do, though, is tap out, and he would have been... He would have... (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's get what happens to Quawich's character. So we're seeing him fall into the abyss, right? Going back to the movie. Like that? (laughs) Another Cameron reference there. Bravo. But as the kids pull Jake up, Spider rescues Crowditch. Why? I, uh, I fucking what? Kid is strong enough to drag his ass. That was my question too. Kiri finds her way back to the spirit tree, which rescues her family as she gives the wings to her mom. I know we didn't even mention this earlier, but we see these wings earlier, and Jen actually had a reaction to these. She's like, "Well, that's kind of cool." And so, what? She's an angel now, right? What exactly is happening to this character? She's Jesus. She knows how to... She literally controls animals. Yeah, she directed those bioluminescent yeah. creatures that were under there that, that looked like the AWAS spores 
that we saw in the first one, but underwater, you know what this little wing thing is that helps them breathe underwater? That's something they're probably selling at Animal Kingdom, is what that is. <laughs> Great you can put it over your shoulders. They look like the fairy wings that kids get for Halloween. And I will say, you know, in 3D, when she's directing those creatures, it's fucking amazing. It beautiful. just looks so awesome. Absolutely beautiful. All of them emerge on the surface, and we finally hear the term ICU. Adam, you mentioned last time that the time they used it the first time really got you. I was not expecting to hear it this time, but I will say this kind of got me. I'm glad. <laughs> not you, huh? <laughs> uh, not, not like it did the last time. I was glad to see it because I felt like there was some emotion behind it, but... Yeah. I was kind of waiting for it. It's like every time they say it's Star Wars, I have a bad feeling about this. It it loses its power. This line is going to be like that friend that sleeps on your couch for way too long. (laughs) It's like, I I want you to go away. It was fun, but we've been friends for so long, I can't complain too much. Which is also a great allegory, speaking of which, for the Terminator franchise. (laughs) We we fade to see them put their son to rest and then connect to the spirit tree and see some visions of the future. And Jake tells us that this is his home, his fortress, and this is where they make their stand as credits roll on Avatar, the way of the water. Oh, boy. We'll talk about what this means for the future in a bit, but let's get our feelings on this movie out in the open. Adam, on a scale of 1 to 10, what do you give Avatar, the way of water? I see you. All right. Avatar The Way of Water. You know what? Enchanted came out 15 years before Disenchanted, so it's not the only time Disney's waited over a decade to make a sequel. <laughs> Same year, actually. There's no question that I was looking forward to this one quite a bit. Does it live up to Avatar? I'm going to start my thoughts by saying no. No, it doesn't. And maybe I should say, of course not. Sequels rarely do. What I think I was surprised at James Cameron is that normally he dramatically shifts a sequel, really takes it in a different direction. And he didn't do that in this one. We've seen it with Aliens. We've seen it with T2. And I think I was expecting a dramatic shift. Instead, what we got was a replay of the beat that we know with him really kind of self-masturbating to his underwater loves. And I could admire that. His underwater documentaries I've watched, I enjoy them profusely. I'm sure $100 million of this $350 million budget is him finding a way to write into production cost, him building his own submarine. The things that work in this movie are what's designed by others. It's not James Cameron writing. It's the effects artists. It's the people designing this world. It's the people designing these creatures, which are absolutely beautiful, which are very graceful, which are amazing to watch on screen. It's the artists who put the work into the depth of feel that we get when we're watching this in 3D. The music is done very, very well. The actors and actresses, well, the actresses, because I'll say I like Zoe Saldana quite a bit. I like Sigourney Weaver. I, I enjoyed that they were able to take her and have her play her daughter. I was happy to see that. I liked seeing Kate Winslet. That's about it. I don't think I cared for a single male character that they actually had in this movie, Spider notwithstanding. I liked the kid, but I didn't like what they did with them. Kind of just back and forth and back and forth. I mean, name him Ping Pong instead of Spider, because that's how they treated him. This is a movie that's still fit to be seen on a big screen. There's no doubt about it. I don't know if it'll hold anything for you if you haven't watched Avatar, though. What you're going to enjoy or not enjoy this movie is the world. The one thing that did stick out to me is, and maybe it's how I feel as an older man, is Jacob many times in this going, a father's role is to protect his family. He says it at the beginning. He says it at the middle. He says it. He closes it at the end that that's his role. And that's something that hit and struck with me, though. 
is to protect his family, to protect the ones he loves. Because I look at my kids, I look at my wife, I look at my household, I look at what we've acquired, and that part there hit. And I think it hits for James Cameron. I think that's what he's trying to do. There's some issues in this movie that we have picked this thing clean like we're picking bones off a fish at the bottom of the sea. There's no doubt about it. And when a movie's going to make half a billion dollars this opening weekend worldwide, we're going to pick at it. It's what we do. I don't enjoy it as much as I do Avatar. Absolutely not. I do think it's a good movie. I do think it's a movie that's worth seeing. I'm very interested to see where it goes next and if he's got the stones to take it somewhere special. It's amazing that another franchise that we discussed, Fantastic Beasts, supposedly had a five-picture arc that may end with three. And I think this might as well. Overall, I'm going to see this again, and I'm happy to see it again. I've been torn on where I'm going to land on it, but I'm going to land where I did when I walked out of the theater because I wrote it down when I got my car because I had a feeling of, wow, that was an experience to see. And I hope everybody does experience it, and your mileage is going to vary, I think, dramatically based on how you feel about this world. But for me, it's a seven. I'm going to bitch and moan about certain things on it, but I still had a good time at the end of the day watching this movie. So I'm a seven on ten. Seven on ten from Mr. Bunch. Matt, you gave the last one a five. Are you going to go higher this time? Before I answer that question, I do have to give my, what I'll call my thesis statement. I think your personal expectations are going to be your compass combined with your thoughts on the first movie. I really wonder if you're someone, not to use myself as an example, I'll get to that in a minute. If you're someone who detests the first Avatar movie, you think it's the most overrated movie in the history of cinema, and anyone that likes it is a has a fetish for cats or what have you, I can't imagine you're going to like this movie substantially more. Hell, you might mm-hmm. like it less. I think it's going to be impossible. For, if, th- if those people exist, though, I'd be curious to hear from you about what it was about this one that resonated with you. So now we have to get to me. And Adam touched on something that I think does tie into my opinion. It is the perspective and you, me as a viewer, being an avatar as far as the, the family aspect. With where I'm at in my life, as I joked about, to kind of open this review, there is a certain component to that that stuck with me that carried me through in a way that the first film did not whatsoever. I think the reason why my score will be what it is is that there's a message in this movie that I really connected to, despite the substandard writing. It's the notion that we learn as much from our kids as much as they learn from us. I think that is something that is obviously true to my heart now, but is a something I always respond to whenever it's done in a movie, even if it's done horribly. I don't think it's done that way here. I would not call this horrible by any means. But those universal aspects of theme and the condition of, of storytelling, I think those resonate more than they ever did in the first film. I think the first film was restricted and confined by conformity of having to please everybody, cover all our bases to make sure no one could be offended by this movie. I, I didn't really feel that with this one. But unfortunately, I don't think it took a lot of chances as far as the storytelling. I don't think there was anything in here that you either could not see coming or really caught me off guard, with the exception of Spider saving Quaritch. I thought that was, oh, God, I wish I wish they both, like this tidal wave came up and took them both away to another franchise so we never had to see them again. I thought that was a huge missed opportunity and a bad call. But I got to say, for the three hours, I can't say I was ever checking my watch. I don't have a smart watch, guys, so get off my ass. Um, (laughs) Or begging for it to be over, because watching the first one for the retrospective that we recorded last week, I was doing that. 
granted, I was in the confines of my own home, so I didn't feel the, the peer pressure that comes with you being that guy in the theater. So I didn't have that here. It was a good theatrical experience, and that, that will sort of reflect in my score. Uh, so I'm going to give this one a six. I do think it's better than the first one. But at the same time, it does have some of the same problems on a writing level that I had with the first one. And there's less Sam Worthington. That automatically makes it better. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to land on a six. Six out of ten from Goudreau. Well, as the pessimistic asshole I am, I will go ahead and say if you're like me and you're going in just because you feel like you have to watch the second Avatar movie because you saw that other one 12 years ago and you feel like it's an obligation to see it, I will say I think everything about this movie is better than last time. The caveat I'll add to that is it's not much better. It's definitely something to go see on the screen. It's the first time I watched this. I just wanted it to be about the experience. I wanted to just sit there. I didn't take notes the first time. I wanted that big IMAX screen to immersify me and take me into Pandora exactly like I was taken to 13 years ago. I came out and I said, that was a fantastic movie. I watched it this time to take notes on it and I was concentrating on the story. It's the exact same thing that happened last time. I'm like, there was not one thing about it I cared about. It was a memorable experience because of the experience. There's not one character I would buy a figure of if I was five, six years old. Given that it's a little better, I will go 6.5, a half point higher. Boys, where the hell can Cameron take this from here? He says we're going to get a third. We're supposed to get a third in, in 2024. So, yeah, we will be covering it in a couple years. But is there a place this can go where my major complaint that I didn't care can change? Yeah, to care. I guess that's what it is. Are they going to kill off Jake and, and let the kids rally around? Clearly, Kira is meant for something. So we're going to see where that goes. What I noticed when I watched this one is we kept seeing, and they talked about the eclipse. They kept showing the main planet. Mm-hmm. and some of the other moons. Let's forget, Pandora's not a planet. It's a moon. It's, yeah. it's one moon, there is a planet, and there's a couple other moons as well. So for all we know, we can pan out, and Earth could have already taken over some of the other ones. So I think you could really scale this up pretty massively if he chooses to, and I'm interested to see where he goes that way. You know, though, I think we all kind of agreed, good with the story, bad script. And I think they need to work on that a little bit. Might be a little too late, but maybe you could easily ADR something since everything is done in post anyway with these movies. But I don't want it just to hop to another tribe. Please don't do it again. Don't go to the desert where we saw, at the end of the first one, we saw Jake Torokmoto go and get all the clans together. Don't just hop to another clan. I think that would be a failure. How do the humans respond? What are they going to do here? And why are they going to respond? So I'm curious. It's 2024. Does Disney even have a film for next Christmas? Because it's not a Star Wars like they planned. But it's two years out, right? So I know it's filmed, and he did that so that the kids wouldn't age up. And I think he's already starting to film four, so we'll we'll see. But I'm definitely going to head back when we go. Not like you have a choice, sir. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Matt, as the person who, if it weren't for this podcast, you probably wouldn't go. Do you think there's anywhere they can take this next one where you would actually care? No. The first thing they'll do is take it to the bank. Hopefully, when this is all said and done, I think that'll be Cameron's first stop, go from blue to green. The second one is that I don't want to do what I joked about, where they jump from element to element, and then the fifth one, they bring them all together. If I was James Cameron, what would I do? It's a scary place to be, first of all. I would do what I thought Alien 3 should have been. 
and that is that you have the Galactic Marines team up with another alien race to go exterminate the Xenomorphs. I kind of want to see the Navi versus the humans just for two hours. Please, no more three hours, James. Learn the power of the word no. You know, just make an all-out war movie. I kind of just want to see that, because I don't care about the characters, but the spectacle is always impressive. Yeah, it's hate to be superficial, but that's all that would really get me interested, unless he does something radically different. What if he kills off the entire family, like they did with Newt Hicks and company? Yeah. <laughs> start with just Jake Sully with the Air Tribe in a prison run by Edie Falco. Let's... Basically I'm saying I either want this to be Alien 3 and I don't want it to be Alien 3 at the same time. <laughs> that would be so ironic given the shit he gave David Fincher for doing that in that film. Yes. Maybe we'll talk about that one day. I'm the same with Matt. I've, I've had two chances with these characters and I thought maybe watching that first one and doing this podcast with you guys would get me to care more. But the more I think about it, I... I don't know how much I would like to go back to Pandora. Now, Cameron has said he's a realist when it comes to this, in that they're already all set to release the next one in 2024, and he realizes that if this one and that next one don't do what's expected, he's not going to get a chance to do up to eight movies. I don't think we're going to get eight movies. I think we have a plan for eight, and I think we're going to divergent this bitch. We're going to get three movies, maybe four and then we're just going to put this to bed. Well, that does it for Avatar, The Way of the Water. What do we have coming up next? Well, we have a year-end show that at least me and Matt are going to be on. Hopefully we get Adam on that. Yeah. All right. Well, Adam will join us, and we're going to talk about the way this year went for us. You know, we had a couple months where we weren't really doing much, and then we launched the site, and uh, we're going to rehash a lot of the things we did this year, as well as give at least half of next year's schedule, right, Matt? Yeah, I think that's what we're thinking. Half of next year's schedule, and I guarantee people are going to be happy because these are things, and I think Matt mentioned this last podcast, that people have been craving for since we started this gig. So be sure to look out for that. Also, I know Matt still has his Angry Jets podcast going. Boy, you have a lot to be angry about lately, sir. And <laughs> I uh, I actually, I'm going back to my roots. I'm actually going to release an interview podcast and I'm really excited about in the next week or so nice. with somebody who I've been wanting to interview for quite a while. And I think people will get a big kick out of her. She's, she's an amazing person and an amazing writer. And I can't wait for people to hear what she has to say. So all of that's coming up and much more. Boys, it's been great going to Pandora with you boys. Look, it wasn't the smoothest of rides, but I'm glad Adam got to indulge himself, and I'm glad we got to experience it as the podcast group that we are, and uh, hopefully we band together and we can bind up with another creature and we can actually take on the next movie and take it without dying. (laughs) (laughs) What a bar. (laughs) Take it to a higher bar, so... Until next week when, well, we'll get to that show when we get to it. The most dangerous thing about podcasts is that you might grow to love them too much. Thank you, boys. This is a place for prayers to be heard and sometimes answered. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast. Join us next week for an entirely new review. It is hard to fill a cup which is already full. The Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast is produced by Garrett, 
Matt, Adam, and Nathan. This is our fortress. Edited by Garrett. A warrior of the Jarhead clan. Voiceovers by Adam. And I have the right to speak. The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. And that's how you scatter the roaches. Let's meet out of here. It's in the same window as Inception for me, which already got me plenty of shit. So I don't <laughs> think having this opinion on Avatar is really not that controversial. <laughs> I didn't say it was Wait. controversial. I just said that it didn't sound like you were looking forward as much forward to it as, let's say, Adam or even I was. Well, Adam was the, the biggest proponent of this movie to begin with. So I don't think no matter what I saw in the trailers, neither you or I could top him because I'm sure he showed up in his Pandora tour guide outfit to find it. <laughs> Adam, you're going to say something. Go ahead. Did, did I just hear Matt say that he did not recommend Inception? No. <laughs> go, don't start that. Please don't start that. <laughs> People, don't go back and listen to that. It'll start that whole thing all over again. I'm not going to go through that. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to Oppenheimer next year. <laughs> and I'll say I identified with his character more. Largely because he is a put-upon father who is stressed out that he has two sons that don't listen to him. And I identify with that tremendously at the stage of my life. Adam, how do you feel uh, Worthington is in this? You know, I think the... (laughs) Sorry, Matt, that made me laugh. Um... I gotta say, I love the coloring of these people in Madams. They match the aquamarine of the water. Mm-hmm. It is. They are that blue green. They are like an exact match to the water around them. And it took me a minute before I noticed that, and I thought it was a beautiful choice. I really did. I'll take Matt. your word. Would you say, Matt? I said I'll take your word on it. <laughs> what, oh, that's what right, Mister Colorblind. <laughs> what I did not expect. After being told that they cannot bring their war to the seas, Jake responds, all he wants to do is keep his family safe. And this causes Tonawari. Is that her name? Or is that his name? Tonawari? That's the Cliff Curtis character. I'm not, I, I, to I, be I, honest, I, I do not even You guys try. are no help whatsoever. Nope. These are not easy to pronounce, and they all sound similar. Yeah, I know. I kept calling the youngest daughter Cookie for some reason. Uh, you know, it's this, Tuck. That's the only one I got easy. It's Tuck. Nice and easy. I got Jake, Nateri, and Took. I don't know anybody else. <laughs> I tell you, I, I'm going to be thinking of this podcast when we do fucking Lord of the Rings years down the line. All right. Uh, those, I, those I know, at least. Yeah. This causes Tonawari and Ron, Ronel, Ronel, Ronel to accept them into the tribe. Felt like he took those undersea anemones and th- – dang it, anemones. 
Sorry, that's a Finding Nemo reference. It, yeah, exactly. Thank you. I knew you'd get it, Father. Um, Sorry, signal's cutting out. I'll talk. I'll, I'll talk to you in two years. Yeah, we mentioned this when we watched uh, Batman vs Superman when they uh, introduced what was that Doomsday? What, what what was that character they introduced in that dream that uh, oh, Affleck well, had? Dark Side. Dark Side. Yeah. Oh, uh, I don't. They they throw a lot of shit in that scene. <laughs> well, yeah, because you got Dark Side, you had the Flash. Yeah, we talked about it in that film, but I'm just saying that's what I kind of flash back to is that we're just saving this for later. I don't know this fight. I like the last fight better in the first film. Uh, hard disagree. I think this final hour far exceeds the first one. Oh, I see. Overall, the final hour blows that other one away. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying the fight between the two here, I just don't like. Could you say it blows it out of the water? <laughs> I just did. <laughs> no, you, you said blood out of the air. You you have to dance around it. <laughs> well, let's get what happens to Kwawich's character. So we're seeing him fall into the abyss, right? Going back to the <laughs> Like that? Another Cameron reference there. Bravo. But as the kids pull Jake up, Spider rescues Kwawich. I... I fucking... kid is strong enough to drag his ass? That was my question, too. What is happening? Why did he not let him face his judgment day? <laughs> Should have let him be terminated. There we go. All right, I think we covered them all. I mean, well, uh, to be fair, the Avatar project with the way these um, they come back, it, it's the spawning. Like they just keep up uh, God damn it! I was going to make that reference. Fuck you. <laughs> there should have been piranhas in this movie. It's the wonder. There's no piranhas to be found. No, true lies, absolutely. <laughs> All right, now we're just whoring ourselves out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you guys are making for some strange days right now. So, Kiri... <laughs> Kiri... And I think we're going to divergent this bitch. We're going to get three movies, maybe four, and then we're just going to put this to bed. And hopefully Sam Worthington's career goes the way of that chick from Divergent. God damn it, what was her name? Shanley Woodley. Shanley yeah. Woodley. Hopefully, Sam Worthington's career goes the way of Shanley Woodley's, where we don't see her, we don't see him, except if he's dating some massive ice skating star. All right. Um, I was trying to think of something <laughs> other than Aaron Rodgers, and that's what I came up with. Ooh, uh.